You're listening to The Jack Skilly Show, brought to you by Hammer Media. On Season 1, we're looking at youth development. You can learn more at hmmrmedia.com. Here's your host, professional hockey player, Jack Skilly. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Episode 9 with my old athletic development coach, Steve Merland. He's from Madison, Wisconsin. He's been an athletic development coach for over 30 years. Uh, he start, He had two major gigs, one with the University of Wisconsin men's Badger ice hockey team, as well with the San Jose Sharks. Uh, there's many different uh, opportunities that he's had to coach in between. So, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Why don't you say hello? Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Uh, hello. Hello to everybody. Awesome. So, Steve, why don't you give us just a brief background about your career, how you got started in athletic development coaching, uh, maybe even the sports that you played growing up that you know, served as a, as a true passion to, to kickstart your career? Well, you know, we were, we were limited back then. You, you mentioned that I'm your old athletic development coach, and you're right, I, I'm, I'm pretty old. Um, uh, I date myself when I say that at Madison West High School, the options for – we didn't have soccer back then in uh, high school sports, so that – that sort of gives you some perspective on this. I think I probably was built for soccer more than I was for football, basketball, and baseball, but those were the sports that I played in high school. Um, When I was done with high school, I think I had the experience that many um, first and second year college students have, especially if they'd been athletes in high school um, is that they, sort of lose the, the discipline and the, uh, the, the regimentation that uh, high school schedule with practice at the end of the day uh, provided. And so by the end of my sophomore year in college, I was, I was kind of frustrated with the way I was feeling. And, and uh, so I, I started to poke around in weight rooms and on campus and, played a lot of basketball and just decided I had to uh, up the physical uh, enrichment quotient in my life. And, and that's kind of how I wandered into training. And um, back then that was before strength and conditioning coaches were even a thing. So this was, uh, you know, the seventies and eighties. And, um, and when that, started to become uh, a recognizable profession, um, I was really interested. And I think, um, you know, I was training, I was training in weight rooms and enjoying it. I was, uh, I was feeling strong and fit. And uh, so a job became available at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, I was a I was a part-time student and a full-time truck driver at the time. And I parked my semi in lot 18 and went up and filled out an application. And lo and behold, they hired me. And um, it's sort of like a Horatio Alger story. I don't think anybody could uh, begin a career in athletic development that way again. But I'm really fortunate that I, I got my foot in that door and uh, 
and I've been there ever since. Very cool. Uh, I know <laughs> a very unique story. Mm-hmm. I know that you've you've always had kind of a unique career. You've been known to kind of go against the grain um, <laughs> when it comes to what your peers are doing. So, which is really cool. I've I've always admired that about you, Steve. And that's it's best definitely had a uh, effect on my own life and what I'm doing and setting up for post career. Uh, stuff post hockey career employment so I'm really thankful for that I'm really thankful for you standing up for what you believe in so that's kind of what I wanted to bring you on the on the show for mostly as well just one you you do know you do understand hockey you've you've dealt with me you've seen it at the pro level as well as San Jose Sharks you understand youth development more than anybody that I know I know there's a lot of youth development coaches out there that lean on you for some, some advice and, and guidance in, in their own programs. What are some things that you have learned as a development coach? I know this is a really broad question, but maybe regarding weight room training versus getting out in the field outdoors uh, at a younger age, what things like what's strength to you? What does strength mean to you? Uh, I, know, I know the average strength and conditioning coach thinks – building strength means getting underneath the barbell or lifting a ton of weight. But I know that your, your idea of strength kind of blows that out of the water. Uh, and it took me a long time to buy in, but what are those types of things to you? And what are some things that maybe some mistakes and we, we can get there It's a long winded question, but um, what are some things that you've noticed along your athletic development coaching career um, that um, are, are, are maybe misinterpreted? Well, I, I think strength is the is the right word to begin with, and and I have to confess that, you know, when they hired me, the the business card that I had at the University of Wisconsin said strength and conditioning coach, and so that's what I focused on. That's all I knew, um, and I considered strength gains as proof positive that I was doing good work. Um, I. I I spent the first four years of my coaching at Wisconsin really focusing on, you know, replicating things that I had done. I think as coaches, that's, that's a trap that we can easily fall into rather than casting our nets a little wider and, and, and really seeing what other people are doing and what other people have done. A lot of times the big innovations are uh, recognizing that things were done really well in the past i mean you can mine former coaching methods and and great old coaches and and what they did you can mine their methods and realize that i know Vern gambetta says you know what's what's old is new again and uh and that's been true but i can honestly say that I focused on strength as an end goal. And I don't believe that that's true. Um, the, I, the big revelation for me was to, to, to recognize that you, while you can't be a good athlete without being strong, you can be strong without being a good athlete. Um, and I hope that, I hope that makes sense to, 
to you and to the people listening. Um, if the focus is on lifting the weight and the movement that you're doing, whether it's a barbell squat or a bench press or whatever, if, if that, if the strength you're developing in that movement has little or no transference to what you actually are going to use the strength to do in sport, then you may be doing a lift that you like to do, but you're not doing a lift that you need to do. And so uh, my focus changed dramatically, radically, um, and almost embarrassingly. So when I went to Vern's first seminar in 1992, um, because I had gone there with a poor attitude. I had gone there thinking that I was good at my job because I had a good job, <laughs> which is, you know, that, that's, that's kind of uh, 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 putting the cart before the horse. So I realized there were so many things that play into creating a good athlete and strength is certainly one of the important ones, but it, it but it's not simply strength unqualified everything has to everything has to funnel into the athlete that you want to create because ultimately you're going to be the athlete you train to be so if you're a martin if you're a uh, if you're going to throw the hammer and you're going to train by doing you know 5 and 10k runs i you know i'm not betting on you uh, in terms of victory in the circle. So, um, I know that's an extreme example, but, but that's the kind of thing that I think we need to remember is that the strength we create needs to, um, needs to play its part in all those other athletic qualities, you know, speed, power, three planes of motion, availability, suppleness, sports skills, all those things, the strength has to supplement that. It has to augment those qualities. And I try to sort quality and quantity um, when I'm training people precisely because I think for so long, and especially in the United States, we are a quantity-oriented culture. We tend to think in terms of how much, how fast, how cheap, <laughs> And, and I really believe that what we value in athletics are those people who demonstrate athletic qualities really, really well. Now, if you're a power lifter, um, then the athletic quality that is really going to stand you in, in, in good stead is going to be the strength to do those lifts that are traditionally associated with weight room training. But very early on, I decided that those weren't all that essential to my mission, especially when it came to training hockey players or soccer players or gymnasts um, or swimmers. And at the University of Wisconsin, I worked with lots and lots and lots of athletes on lots of teams. And so I had to really start to rethink my approach. And I did. Here's a question for both of you. I know um, you've known Jack since he was younger and, and worked with him at different points in his career. Um, and, and Jack, you've said when we've talked before, you were focused a lot more on the strength side before you worked more with Steve. So 
Steve, on your side, kind of what did you see with Jack when you started working with him? And then on, on Jack, on your side, what did you, um, you know, what, what kind of helped change your mindset? Cause not a lot of people are open to that, that change of mindset either. Well, well let's, I yeah, can, let Steve start with this one. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. One of the advantages that I had when I started working with Jack is that I'd grown up watching his father, um, leap played hockey when my younger brother was playing and they played on similar, they played on all-star teams together and that. And I also got to see him run track and I also got to see him play football. And, uh, and I believe I tried to tackle him once. Um, it didn't work out well for me. That's where I'd like to leave that, but I won't tell him. Don't worry. (laughs) But I, and I've said this often, I, I don't know that I've ever seen, many hockey players accelerate in three strides as well as, as Lee Skilly did. And so it's, it's a real advantage to have a sort of a, a genetic notion of, of who you're going to work with. Um, so obviously I knew that, that Jack came from, from good, you know, athletic stock and, uh, and it's not just on his father's side either. So, um, uh, that that was that was one thing. Uh, I th- I think uh, I th- believe that you and your dad came to me precisely because I was a little bit uh, out of the box relative to other people. Is that true, Jack? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. In fact, I was actually kind of mad at my dad at the time because it just didn't line up with what I wanted to do, what everybody else was doing my age, but I'll let you continue, Steve. How old were you? Just I was fun. like, what, what was I, Steve? I think I was like 13 or 14 years old. I was just starting to the, get into like, like the weightlifting area of my career. Yeah. And that, that I have to give everybody credit for trusting me at that age, because I, it's an age where especially adolescent boys, they want to conform and they also want to, they, they also want to be the biggest guy in the weight room. They want to be the guy who squats the most and does all of that. And I think that would have been an easy, an easy thing for you, Jack, because I think you had that uh, capacity. So, um, and, and it's worth pointing out that I have worked with Jack many times, but not in complete succession. It, it hasn't been a straight line. There were, there were a couple of years where I didn't see uh, and a couple of years where you came back. But you could do the things that I asked you to do. And I, I think you sort of had fun uh, with some of the training. We did a lot of it out of the weight room, obviously. Um, and we did a lot of it using equipment that isn't what we would we standard think of uh, when it comes to uh, physical training. Um, and I think you kind of had a, a, a more than one Reflirtation with standard training. Uh, the, the the one time that I remember, and this was before, I know this must have been before the Vancouver Olympics because I was working with um, a, a couple of women from that team, and, uh, and Molly Engstrom. Uh, if you remember, Jack, that was the summer that you came back, yep. and I hadn't seen you for a while, and I think that was after uh, a two year. Um, hiatus where you really focused on the big lifts, the barbell lifts. And I think you were a good five or 10 pounds heavier and it was, it was good weight. It was all strength weight, but 
but you weren't moving that well. In my opinion, in my assessment, you were moving pretty stiffly and uh, there, there didn't, you didn't have that suppleness that I think is uh, an important uh, underpinning for the grace that you need as an athlete. Is that, am I? Uh, you're spot on. Hard? No, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. You're spot on. I think conforming is the perfect word. I think it's really uh, conforming. Is re- it's really hard not to do when you're a hockey player. You're part of a team sport. You want to do what your yes. teammates are doing. You want to do maybe what your opponents are doing. I think parents get caught up in that too. We talk about parents all the time time in this this first season we, we, without trying to be too hard on them a lot of parents the grace is in the fact that they don't know really what they're getting into with the sport of hockey it's there's not much not a ton of knowledge out there it's not like football basketball baseball kind of the mainstream sports uh it's also a lot more expensive than those sports to play so <laughs> Yes, these is. parents, yeah, these parents come in and, and they don't really know much. So they're just kind of going off of what everybody else around them is doing. And that's kind of what the, the start of this podcast, Steve, this is why we started it. I got involved in coaching in my hiatus out here while I was taking a breath from the game. And for about 10 months, as I mentioned a few times in previous episodes, and I noticed that parents out here had a lot of questions for, for me and, and, they were all very similar questions. And and then I noticed some things that coaches, and I'm sure you've had frustrations as a coach, uh, watching other coaches and things they're doing as well. And, 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 and it was just kind of, there's just so much phoniness um, in the world. um, But especially in the coaching world that they people, it's like they, they throw a bag over these parents' heads and, and make them pay so much money without giving them high-quality information, um, maybe because they're just they're faking it themselves as coaches. So that really drove me crazy. So that, for me, conforming, trying to follow what other people are doing and, and maybe trusting the wrong people along the way, not to say that I haven't had great coaches. I mean, I've had great athletic development coaches throughout through and through my whole career mm-hmm. but I think they've learned along the way just like you said you learned at an early point in your career that maybe I'm doing the wrong thing and you changed um and well I, I learned that I, I I didn't know as much as I thought I knew and that was a really really healthy shock now it wasn't it didn't come easy to me it was it was humiliating I mean it was embarrassing to recognize that I'd spent well, four years at Wisconsin, assuming that I knew more than I obviously did and not reaching out and looking outward and trying to identify uh, best practices with other coaches. I think that's so critical in, in what we do because what we do, what I do, has evolved like everything evolves and we learn things and, and we, we have to adapt. Um, and I I, I tend to rely on Vern and others to be to be the the first line of connection to the to the science of training. I I, I think I'm more of an intuitive coach than a scientific coach, but I, I I base my intuition on what my elders and betters are are discovering as they dig through the research and through our discussions and. And it's, it's funny because when I, if I do a presentation or, or if I am introduced, 
nobody fails to mention that I worked with a pro hockey team. And I always laugh because that was in 1993, 1994. And I, I like to think that I was pretty good back then, but I've learned so much (laughs) in the last 26 or seven years that um, I know I'm, I'm just exponentially better at what I do now than I was then, but because that's the coin of the realm. And, and, and I think you, you've certainly experienced that as a pro athlete that, um, that that's sort of why people decide they're going to listen to you. Um, But I think it's kind of a sham because I'm a lot smarter now than I was in 1993. So, Right. And I think that's the best part quality about you, Steve. And I think you brought that out of me that one, a couple summers ago, we really had a good summer. I was going through some things, uh, some growth, growing pains off the ice and, and in real life. And, and you were, you were training me at the same time. It was a really great summer. And I just, that's one of the things that I recognized about you is just your humility and, and always learning and understanding that you could be wrong and, and um, which is, which is a really, I think a great quality in any human being. I think in this sporting world, we kind of steer away from that because it's almost like admitting defeat in a way, or at least it can be thought in in that way. But I, I see it as the opposite. I see it as strength. I see it as good leadership. And, and I think that's something that Jonathan Taves had talked about in our first episode is just being a good leader and, and, you know, leaning on the people around you. And I think that's one of your, your greatest qualities, but to kind of speak into Martin's question, it was just, I, I went with Steve off and on because I, again, I, I got stuck in the conforming. I, I wanted to do what the other pro guys in the area in Madison in the off season were doing. They were heckling me pretty good every time I went and worked with Steve. Cause I think they were, <laughs> they were possibly threatened maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know if they were threatened by what I was doing or, cause you can, things get pretty competitive at that level. And once the guy kind of goes away from the field, uh, the, the group, they, they're wondering if they're doing the wrong thing as well. Um, that might not have been the case, but that was kind of my, my notion of it. So then I caved every now and again, went back to the group and worked with Jim Schneider at, at the university of Wisconsin. who's a great Well, trainer. that's not caving. Let's not put that as caving. That's, that's a quality option. I know Jim. Absolutely. Schneider, right? No. And he's I, and a I, great coach. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. And, 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 and I was just going to say, Jim Schneider is yeah. a great coach. He's, yeah. I think he still has neural explosion and, and uh, as a business in Madison as well on the side, but uh, he's, he's one of my favorites that I've ever worked with. So he was a great, great option. Yes. But there are times when I had mentioned it at Vern's net uh, coaching conference in Houston to the to coaches that when you're, when you're a pro athlete, you're being paid to do this. And I was struggling. I wasn't really having success or the success that I wanted to have, or I was looking for. And you go and you train in this group atmosphere of 15, 16 guys. Where is the individual uh, where's the individuality in that? Where, where do you get that personal training? Where do you work on your true weaknesses as an athlete? And I'm not going to discredit Jim because I mean, he's a, he's a strength and conditioning coach for a D one college. He's probably, I think he had the golf team and the women's hockey team, the men's hockey team, and then the pro group in the summers. I mean, his, his plate was full. He didn't have no time for guys like me that were kind of bottom of the barrel pros trying to break it into the NHL for the most time, most, most of the time, most of my career trying to be, be a solidified NHLer. So I wasn't getting that personal training 
aspect. On top of it, as you mentioned, Steve, in my, my career or my year in Florida, I had realized that I wasn't moving very well. I wasn't carrying my weight. I was probably about five pounds overweight. I wasn't as agile. I wasn't, um, I never thought you were Jack. I never thought you were overweight when I saw you, but I thought that the, the weight you had added was, was not, was not helping you. It seemed to be getting in your way. I mean, you, you looked fit, you were obviously strong, but, and you were heavier, but that, that added, I, I believe it was muscle weight, but it, it didn't seem to be muscle that was doing you any good. That I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, I think you. I think that's exactly what I was trying to get to. Is I wasn't. I wasn't working well together. My body just wasn't moving well. I, I had great, maybe good weight. I I think I was only about seven or eight, seven and a half, eight percent body fat at, at two hundred twenty pounds. I mean, that's pretty lean for a two hundred twenty pound yeah. guy. Pretty good, good build for a fourth line player in the NHL. The, but the league was changing. It was getting faster and faster every single year. And yes. I was getting older and older every single year. So I needed to find a way to balance that out. I noticed I just was just carrying too much weight, I think, for my frame. And that's when I approached you. I think it was before that Vancouver Olympic year. Just well, and, 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 and to your point, though, the league was for a long time. I mean, the year that the year that I was there, I believe that was Eric Lindros's rookie year. And he was the new prototype. And I mean, he, he's a big guy. And I think the league had gone progressively more and more to bigger players. And so survival in an 82 game season, um, you know, if you're going to survive playing every third or sometimes second night um, crossing three, four time zones and, and, and playing at that speed, you're probably going to, the, the, the way you train is going to have to reflect the way the game is evolving. And right then it was going there. Now I think when Martin Saint Louis was, you know, had success with Tampa Bay and, and everybody realized that he was, he was small and quick and agile and supple and, you know, skilled I think that started to tip that whole thing back but I think you I think you were simply <laughs> trying to stay alive in the game and as you say and, and sometimes that means you have to make changes in the way you train and changes in the body you try to create to survive in the game and I think you did that absolutely that that was the thing too that was it was it got to a point where it just wasn't working for me the way I was doing it, it just wasn't working. So and we all know the definition of insanity. So I had to change something. <laughs> I had to change yeah. something. And I, I went to you and it was a great summer. I remember just doing a ton of field work and agility stuff and, and jumping and a lot of the stuff that you do with your kids. And in fact, that summer we had a, a group of kids that were training with me. You know, we created yes. this little thing. It was fun. It was a fun little group. Kids got to train next next to me and, and they were pushing me. I was pushing them. It was a lot of fun. And I was still able to get a lot of good quality work in, but that's kind of that's kind of the background story between Mar- between Steve and I, Martin. And the the thing is, is I've learned so much from working with Steve, even if it's been sporadically, um, even about hip mobility and all these things. But most recently, one of the things that I want to make sure that we discuss, because Steve and I can both get really long winded here, 
um, is Steve's never been a guy that has relied heavily on equipment. And that is something that I see every single strength and conditioning coach that I've ever worked with besides Steve has relied on certain equipment to get their job done. And I think that is another area where Steve doesn't, he's not dependent on those things. And when I now see, because of Steve, I'm sorry, you've kind of jaded me, Steve, in a way, because now I see like guys with these beautiful, cool gyms with these whistles and yo-yos and they're posting their Instagram videos or their new, you know, motion machine, whatever it is. And I'm watching them do it. And I'm like, wow, cool machine. But I'm more focused on the movement than I am the machine. And I'm looking at the movement. I'm going, well, where's the rotation? You know, where's the athletic movement? Yeah, it's a cool machine and it's clocking. You do this quick paloff press or whatever the heck you're doing, but there's no (laughs) direct relation to the sport that this kid is playing. So therefore, yeah, you're, you, again, it's kind of that phony niche where it's like, Hey, look at me, mom and dad, look at your kids doing your kids working this really fancy machine. Um, but to the person that has the eye, they're looking at it and they're going, you're wasting your money on, on this training because your kid's not actually getting any better. So that's kind of where I'm at. Can you speak into that a little bit, just please? For Well, yes. Yeah, I, go ahead. I, well, I, I, I think I recognized early on that um, strength gains were the first refuge of a poor strength and conditioning coach. I mean, in other words, if I, if I go to the soccer coach and I – tell the soccer coach that as a team, our leg extension numbers are up 10%. I, I think what I'm doing there is blowing smoke to, you know, because if the coach comes back and says, how does that make them better soccer players? Well, I, I'd have, then I'm exposed for not really knowing whether it does or it doesn't. Um, and I, Further, Vern said something in that first seminar in 1992. He said, simplicity yields complexity. I don't know if if he was quoting somebody, but I'm quoting Vern. Simplicity yields complexity. And if we think about, let's think about ice hockey for a second. Let's, let's, Let's try to organize our thoughts about what that game entails, what a, what a, what a single shift entails or might entail because it's so unpredictable. It's chaotic. It's, it's hyper fast. It's physical. It involves hard surfaces, the boards and the ice and the net and, and hard bodies going, you know, in the same direction in different directions. It, it, I, I think when you think about the complexity, just the complexity of skating well, um, you realize that that what we really are is chasing grace. And if we're going to do that, we need, we need to focus on those training methods that, that um, yield complexity. And when we, when we go to standard training equipment, we tend to become more specialized. We limit planes of motion. And we limit range of motion and we limit direction of motion. And, and so that, that didn't make much sense to me. 
again, I think that what we value in our athletes, and I think this is true for anybody, whether you're a coach or not, if you're watching a hockey game, um, your eye is going to be drawn to the people moving with greatest grace. When you see somebody flying down the ice and, and maneuvering around um, opposing players, when you see, when you see a great tic-tac-toe goal where people are just, they know where the, each their teammates are and the puck moves so fast that you really are almost getting whiplash trying to follow it. And it ends up in the back of the net. Um, what, what you're appreciating there is, is the, the grace at speed of the game and of the athletes that play it. And I think that everybody appreciates the human eye is just, uh, just locks onto graceful movement. And it knows the difference between graceful movement and not so graceful movement. I mean, that's something that I think almost everybody can appreciate. So those were the criteria that really mattered to me. And, and I know I've been on podcasts with Martin, Martin, I think you actually asked me one day, so let me get this straight. (laughs) You don't use barbells. And I, I think I've really tried hard to back away from that direct confrontation because I know it makes me into an apostate. Um, but but I and I would say, well, not that often. And, you know, but I mean, Jack can tell you that the truth is we have very rarely used a barbell. Um, and it's just because I find I find it kind of a limiting tool. I find it it, it limits my options and it also limits my venue. I, I have to I have to be someplace where there are barbells and ultimately as a coach, I believe that my value is in creating independence in the athletes I work with rather than dependence on me or on the equipment or on the venue. I mean, the more I could teach you, Jack, so that wherever you were, if you decided I need to do some more of this training that I used to do with Steve, you could do it. You can do it anywhere. You can do it any place, any time. You don't need much to accomplish it. And what you do need, you can probably fabricate or co-op from something that's laying around the house. Um, so I like that sense of, of imparting freedom. And, and, and I like the idea that you can train to play where you play. Um, I, I really believe in all of those things. And furthermore, one of the things that, uh, we should mention that that, that was our advantage in working one-on-one and was Jimmy's disadvantage in working one-on-20. It's really much easier to individualize a program when you're working with an individual. And if, and I've had the experience where working with, you know, 45 female rowers at one time, uh, my training program was one size fits all because that was the necessity of the moment. But, I, I recognized early on that one size never fits all. And as my late great yoga teacher and friend, Roger Eisen's taught me, it's all about difference and it's always about difference. And we have to, we have to identify those differences and then we have to, we have to work with and around them sometimes. But I, when you were talking 
about the simplicity, um, the, 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 the lack of equipment. What I remember finally, Jack, was going over to the, the hill in Middleton, um, which we used to do about once a week. And we'd spend the whole uh, training session on that short, steep hill. And I think we, <laughs> I don't know, we, I remember writing down all the things that we did over there. And I think it's a list of about 75 things. Martin, I think I sent you that list. That came right out of Jack Skilly training. So, I mean, all the ways you can locomote up and down a hill. And I think the only equipment we ever used in conjunction with that hill training was we'd, we'd bring a stick along so that Jack, you could move up and down the hill with your stick because hockey players carry sticks. And so that affects the way their, uh, their mechanics, uh, their, their locomotion mechanics go. So that was simply a nod to the game. And, uh, but that hill provided us many, many training sessions and, I hope hey, you and that's, a, and that's the way. Yeah, I remember finally because I'm actually just speaking to your a lot, giving the the athlete the independence and coaching independence. Really, one that takes as a coach, I have to imagine a relinquishing of control on a level that's like through the roof. And I think that's a, another thing about coaching that I, I, the only only knock on some coaches that I've had is just like they just are micromanagers. And I think if you're a micromanager with your athlete, I think you you end up losing that athlete finding their grace. You, now you're telling them how to move as opposed to them figuring out the puzzle themselves and that what That's works for their point. body. Yeah. And I think it's really cool to see that unfold when you relinquish that control. And now on top of that, Steve, I've now building a company called FMT life where it's functional movement training for life. And it's, it's based off of, and I, I know I've, I've asked your permission because I feel terrible because a lot of it is everything that you've taught me. I've soaked it up like a sponge. You've been doing a <laughs> workout group for the last 30 plus years. And I've started one now in park city, Utah, and it's, it's growing naturally and organically. It's beautiful. And it's a lot of fun. And that is, I think a credit to you Steve, because I have, you've taught me how to fish. You've taught me how to fish. You didn't go and catch a fish for me. You said, Hey, like this is how we do things. And you taught it and you let me kind of figure out the puzzles as we went along. And now I'm doing it as a coach and I'm integrating everything. And I'm also, I'm also finding things like there's just funny things like that. I've I've been learning uh, and we'll get to that. But one of the things that I've been reading I was reading in Vern's book was about core and isolating muscles and, and all that. And I th- Martin, maybe you can speak into this as well. Maybe things that you've learned as a coach, but I think people get so focused on isolating muscles, muscle groups and training them. Um, whether you're doing maybe a, a plank uh, or uh, this rotation that I saw this person doing on, on video, they were using a machine. It was attached to the wall. They were cranking on this cord, and it was their they, their hips weren't moving at all. There was zero rotation. The, the finger the, the the toenails were not connected to the finger fingertips, so to speak. Yeah. And all I see was like, yeah, it's a great. I'm sure that that trainer thinks it's a great core exercise. Yep, because we're working the core. But you can still work the core by connecting your 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 
toenails to your fingernails. Okay, let's let's let me. I, I want to. You just used a word, and I wanted to use it in conjunction with what you do as, you know, as a hockey player, and what Martin does as a hammer thrower. I mean, I I my my people probably got tired of me dragging out a length of chain and 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 explaining my definition of this phrase that we use in training all the time, which is the kinetic chain, because that's what a body is. It's a kinetic chain and a chain does not function without tension. The old joke about, you know, try to push one. So each link has to inform the link on either side in order for a body to move with efficiency and effectiveness so Martin, you, you, I mean, you know, this, you know, if the timing is off, when you start to rotate, you're probably going to, you're probably going to wrap yourself up in the, in, in the chain. And, and, and if you, if you can imagine, I mean, just picture uh, a slow, especially a slow motion uh, video of a hockey player hitting a, a slap shot. And I mean, for, for one thing, that's when you get to see the the flex and the stick and the power that goes in there. But every link of the chain has to play its part, has to contribute um, its segment of work to the overall production. And and that so that's why that that word has has is big medicine to me that that connectedness because ultimately whether you're and I, I guess this sort of speaks to the morning group that I've run that is a whole spectrum of people. We could have, obviously, we could have pro hockey players there, but we could also have people that have just crawled off the couch and decided they needed to get back into living a physical life after 50 years of sedentary living and poor diet. So, but I do believe that no matter what your goal is, whether it's to play in the NHL or or to simply age gracefully, what you want to create is a body that is really adaptable rather than simply adapted. I mean, I've said that for years and years and years, and I think it's a phrase that's been somewhat associated with me, but I'm proud of that because that's what I think we all want to be. The, I, I just simply believe that, that great generalists um, survive more of those 50-50 moments in life and in sport um, than people that have trained in specific movement patterns exclusively, almost exclusively, and maybe not invested time in, in, in exploring the frontal plane and the transverse plane. And I think those are the athletes that ultimately become brittle and breakable. Whereas athletes that have trained in multiple circumstances and have taught their bodies to solve physical puzzles as they come, who have trained in predictable circumstances for, and then added unpredictability um, to those circumstances, they tend to survive. And, you know, hockey is an unscripted sport. Hammer throwing is a scripted sport. But I, I think that lesson applies to both, but I'll... I'll let you two speak to that. Yeah, I think you're nailing everything and you always do. That's why I love having you as a guest, but that the kinetic chain, 100% moving, moving, connecting yourself from your toenails to your finger fingertips. I think that's exactly 
why I admired what you do. And, and now I, like I said, that's why I'm jaded because I'm seeing a lot of guys that aren't doing that. And I think that's the educated reason why a lot of people have, have had success that have been on the show. The guys that have made it to the NHL have said, I was a multi-sport athlete when I grew up. Sure. And every, and, and, Again, Angela Ricci in episode three said the, a lot of these kids are one sport, one dimensional athletes or hockey players, year round hockey players. And we've never seen more injuries than before. And I, th- I think you're, you're spot on. And this is the educated reason for parents and coaches and everybody listening to this is when you play other sports, you're moving your body in different ways. You're training your body. You're, you're building strength in other ways that you wouldn't in your main sport. And I think that is the main benefit to moving around as an athletic whole instead of a one-dimensional, un, uh, non-adaptable athlete. And yeah, you, 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 really, you really are becoming an athletic generalist. And there's tons of research. A lot of it, there's some good research that was done right here at the University of Wisconsin, Tim McGuine and, and, and a bunch of others. And it's worth looking up about the, the results of the, the net effects of early specialization and over-specialization. And I think it's important to understand there's a psychological component to all of this, whether it's conformity of training. Um, as you said, I mean, there's, there's pressure if you're part of a team to train like the rest of the team, even if you decide, you know, this isn't working well for me, <laughs> there's still pressure to do it. And for parents um, who don't, who can't speak to these things the way we are speaking to them because they just don't have that background, they have to put their faith in people. And, and the, the thing that's being done by the broadest number of people for the longest amount of time tends to, to be the tends to be the, the choice that gets made. And if you start specializing early and you and you and you start training that way, and let's just say that your training involves an awful lot of barbell stuff, meaning that virtually you're locking yourself into the sagittal plane. And let's just let's I just want to go right back to hammer throwing and, and hockey. If if you're training exclusively in the sagittal plane with barbell squats and deadlifts and bench presses, then what is what is helping your body get better at the rotational movement and the lateral movement that you're going to need to compete well in the sport that you're going to play? So I think too to speak into that. Sorry to interject, but to, to speak yeah. into that is I've I've worked with as a coach and and even just training myself this summer, getting ready for my next season in Germany. I've worked with local pro guys that are doing the, the normal training that I've, that I did with all the strength and conditioning coaches besides yourself for, for years, a lot of, a lot of barbell stuff and maybe, maybe some lighter weight barbell stuff, which is, I, I kind of agree with I'm I'm starting to kind of learn that not to go against you, Steve, but um, <laughs> I think there is a place for that, but I think it needs to be supplemented if you're going to do it. And I think I think Martin would probably agree with that, but at the same time, if you can build it, like you said earlier, to, to not rely on it, to not, 
if you can adapt outside of the barbell and, and create movements with dumbbells or aqua bags or um, a rock, even, you know what I mean? Uh, oh, yeah. Then you're, then you're really, you're really using your environment. And I think that's a sign of a great coach, but to go back to what I started with was I've, I've practiced with local pro guys here and I throw you know, Sean Allard, who is the avalanche skills coach. Uh, you, you know, Shawnee really well, yep. Stephen you've seen the stuff that he does on the ice and it's, it's new NHL stuff. It's, it's, we call them Mohawks. You're opening up your, your hips. You're learning how to move it while your hips are opened up. It's a lot of hip mobility to open up the vision of the game. And I think that if you watch the NHL, a lot of these young guys are coming in and they're, they're evolving the game because of their, their ability to, move well i think that's a, a testament to them maybe being multi-sport athletes or or not training specifically as a hockey player or maybe they are training specifically as a hockey player and they just worked a ton on skating and and hip mobility on the ice but at least they're getting hip mobility what i'm getting at is these local pro guys that are right around my age or a little you know little younger i throw them through a, a motion mohawk or something where their hips and they're like Oh man, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. My hips are, my hips are tight. And I'm, I'm kind of going, well, figure it out. You better learn how to do this because this is the NHL. If you want to make it in the NHL, you better learn how to do this stuff. And because this is where the game's going. And I think that's a testament to you, Steve. I think it's a testament to guys like Martin and, and Vern that you look at the sports that you're training, you're seeing where the game's going and you're starting to integrate those things in your program. That goes back to what you were saying, Steve, about learning as you go, constantly evolving and being open to that. I, I mentioned one in the other previous episodes, there's, there's coaches that I know that have been doing things for the same for the last 10 years and they won't listen to anybody else. Their program's never changed. And it, it, it's, that's frustrating as as an athlete or a coach that cares about athletic development and, and helping these kids become better athletes and evolving the sport guys that are in charge that aren't, are unwilling to do that. So I think those are things as parents and coaches to look for in good high quality athletic development programs is making sure that the way that your trainer is training you make sure that it's applying to your sport in some way. And, and if you if you find yourself not able to do a skill on your playing surface that is constantly used in the game, maybe maybe start questioning what's really going on. Yes. Um, I, I, I I should say that um, it, in terms of evolving my perspective and 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 my knowledge base and everything else. You know, I have to acknowledge that I I do stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, in addition to Vern, early on when I was at Wisconsin, I made it a point to reach out to Jack Blatherwick when he was working. He was in Minnesota. He was working with the Gophers, and 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 Jack has been a, a, a great friend. Jack will forget more about how you train a, a body for hockey or anything for that matter than most people will ever know. And I, and I know that a lot of the things that we did, Jack, I mean, if you remember uh, Russian box, you're bounding on the Russian box, the angled platform, and that's all well and good. You do that really, really well. But then we added a stick and then I stood in front of you and I pointed 
wherever I wanted to point. And while you were bounding to your left, you may have to reach up high with it and follow my stick. So we were connecting and disconnecting the kinetic chain the way it happens in the game. And that was all Jack Blatherwick. I mean, so uh, for, for, for parents, and I know that that's the, the, the thrust of this whole podcast thing, for parents to have confidence in, in believing that the coaches that are working with their children um, are, are, are well-founded, there are a couple things. Number one, their, 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 their kids should come home and say they had fun. And it has to be fun. It has to be thrillingly fun the whole time. They want. They have to want to go not only to play the game, but they 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 should enjoy the training. And I think the year you mentioned when we when we simply combined um, youth training with your training, um, that was a really neat synergy because I think you did work harder <laughs> because you knew they were looking at you as the pro guy, and I know they worked harder and and they bought in easier to the goofy stuff that we were doing um you know running around cones with with sticks in our hands and and doing pirouettes and and doing movement puzzles on the turf but that sort of thing um uh i i i i think you can train athletes of all ages and all skill levels if everybody's dialed in that way and that seemed to bear that out but i think the parents have to sort of take a leap of faith when they sign their, their children up. And I'm afraid sometimes they, they believe in the most expensive model, which isn't always the best way to go. Um, exactly, I, yep. and I, I, you know, I have to say this and I say this even in reference to you, the athletes that we venerate, the athletes that we recognize early on and that we, we can follow for the longest, the ones that make it, to the pros or to the Olympics or those athletes might succeed in spite of us as coaches rather than because of us, Martin, feel free to jump in, but I've, I've had this sneaking suspicion sometime for some time that the best athletes are just great genetic survivors and they have, uh, they've, they've got a certain element of, of, of enhanced luck to go with it. Um, I mean, I think the best thing that we can do as coaches is to allow the inner athlete to emerge. And sometimes that means let's not, let's not get in the way. Let's not worry about putting, for instance, my stamp on Jack Skilly, but letting Jack Skilly create his own brand, so to speak. And, you know, it helps when you're working with quality genetic material, for sure. But I believe in epigenetics. I believe that it's nature and nurture in some sort of harmonic balance. And for that reason, um, it's 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 easier for me to work with one or two athletes at a time. Um, I don't do that very often, but in your case, I made an exception. But but I, I think parents have to recognize that the way the way it's generally done can generally be improved on and if you can have a dialogue with the people that coach your child um and you can you can ask philosophical questions you can ask 
you know, I noticed you were doing this. That was kind of curious. I'd never seen that before. Can you explain that? Good coaches should have a reason for everything they do. And I've always said that if an athlete says, why are we doing this? If I can't come up with a good reason right then and there, there's a pretty good chance that we shouldn't have been doing it. Um, that it maybe was filler. Maybe it was something that I grabbed on to, to, to end the workout with because I had 10 minutes left to go. And I think as coaches, we've probably all been guilty of that at one point in time, but yeah, I don't I think, like that. I think, I think that's great. That's, that's a super good point that you've made. <laughs> and I think the word that I want to want people to clue in there is dialogue. Don't just mm-hmm. go up to your coach and tell him what to do or act like, you know, everything. That's not a good way to approach a coach. It's not a good way to approach a manager. You are now going to be pegged as a crazy parent. So right. if you want something accomplished with the coach, I think asking questions is a really great start. If your coach, and you can really, under the radar, start gauging where your coach is at, just like you said, Steve. If they don't have a good reason why, then you're spot on. They shouldn't have been doing it. Or maybe it was a good drill and they still don't have a good reason why. Well, they still need that. You at least know where they're at in terms of knowledge and experience. Um, what's, what's really cool is when you say that, it just takes me, I've had coaches that when I've asked why, why are you doing this? Or I've overheard parents asking other coaches, why are you doing this? And their answer is because it looks cool. <laughs> I basically, I like cringe. I can't even, I can't even imagine those words coming out of my mouth um, as a response, as a why, um, or even well, a reason for, for a drill. Well, you know, the, and I, uh, I'm about to make enemies here, but my, the thing that, that makes me cringe is when I see a whole team lined up in the hallway doing wall sits um, and everybody's done wall sits and a lot of people still do wall sits. And I, and I just think, you know, you have so little time to actually improve someone's ability to move that, that to spend any of it, um, in a static position, making the quads burn because that burn, that burn always feels like progress. I don't think it is progress. I think it's illusory, but, but I mean, that's something that coaches grew up doing. That's something that coaches perpetuate and training time is movement time is too precious to, to waste on lack of movement. So so I, you know, there are certain things that you can see coaches doing with your, with your child. I mean, if you see, you know, if you see your daughter doing a wall sit for, you know, 60 seconds, um, she's going to remember that her, her quads burn, but, but whether or not that relates to or transfers to the, the game, I'm skeptical of that. I've been skeptical of that all my life and I remain skeptical of that. So I think that's another great point that you bring up too. And I was listening, Martin, you're, um, you, you have a podcaster. It's maybe it's not you on your website. Maybe you're just supporting it, but Tracy Fober and Donnie Fox, uh, is that, is that a part of your website? That's not ours, but I mean, obviously they're, they're friends of the gain family and uh, we try and promote it as much as we can. Okay, because I was I was tuning into their podcast, and Donnie I think was talking about Vern and his his ideology of coaching an athlete in the moment. Instead of focusing on the burn, you actually kind of want to want the athlete to not really feel anything. It's almost kind of I I don't know what Donnie called it. 
transparency or something like that, where the, the athlete the next day is when it feels, when he feels it, he's not really feeling it in the moment. There's not really a burn, but you're, it's such a good movement, good structured movement that you're working on that it's, it's athletic, it's functional, and that burn is until later. And I think that is what's really cool about what you bring up about that burn. Everybody, you're right. You're spot on. Everybody gets so focused on the burn. And even you look at CrossFit, I mean, people are like going to the point where their, their forearms are about to explode. And it's, yeah. it's like, what does that do for you? Really? What does that really do for you? Except well, yeah, for- Vern, Vern has a tremendous line. He said, are you, are you making the muscles sing or are you making them scream exactly and, you know i like it when muscles sing because they right. sing to to me as a coach i can see that you're that you're singing your muscles are working together and they're singing a beautiful chorus but i can also tell when they're screaming and exactly yeah. and i think i think that's that's exactly kind of what before we go too long here i want to make sure that so parents, we, we've in coaches and whoever's listening to this is listen to us talk about all these things. And now they possibly might have some questions. Okay. So if I don't want, if my kid's 12, 13, 14 years old, and you're telling me that let's not focus on the burn and uh, maybe a heavy weight lifting at this age isn't good. What do I do or what should I be looking for, for my kid to be doing? And I'm going to let you speak into that, Steve, because you've actually given me some really good advice and kind of take it to the very beginning of this conversation of what strength really is. So what are some great ways to build strength as a young athlete between 12, even 15 years old, um, before, you know, puberty really, really hits hard um, as a male athlete, at least? Well, it's a great question. I think you have to break it actually into gender. Um, because let's remember that, the that if you're a 13 year old boy, you want to be buff. <laughs> you want to be, you want to have the biggest, most well-defined biceps in the gym. You want to male males tend to relate to each other in that pyramidal thing everybody in the gym knows who squats the most who benches the most who's the funniest who's the smartest i mean that's just the way men tend to or boys tend to relate to life i think um but i learned early on with uh, the uw women's soccer team that they were skeptical of my priorities when they came in the weight room they they really didn't want to be weightlifters most of them felt that they were being asked to create bodies that were not going to be well received socially and and that may or may not be a rational fear but even if it's an irrational fear it's it's real and so we have to understand what what the athlete brings to the training session and and like it or not, we need to honor it. We need to work with it and and uh, and accept it. So uh, I like, I mean, for lack of a better term, I would call a lot of what we do and what we've done, Jack, is movement puzzles. In other words, I like to give, I, I like to assign tasks, and then I like to to pay careful attention to how the athlete self-organizes to solve those puzzles um what would be a good what would be a good example of a puzzle steve well 
for instance, we've done, you and I have done things like three lateral bounds and a, and a, and a hop up. So I bound to the right foot, to the left foot, back to the right foot. And I land on that. I, I, I decelerate that frontal plane motion and I, and I transfer it immediately into a load to, for a vertical hop. And then I'm going to land that hop and then I'm going to repeat that three lateral bounds. And that's going to happen on the other side. Um, you and I have done a lateral bound and then uh, rotational lateral bound back. So you're externally rotating the, the uh, outside hip to come back. And then you're, we, we bound it around sort of clockwise and counterclockwise. So um, I, just, I just like things that are not um, cons- all that constrained. Um, one point two, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, at one point too, Steve, you told me, you know, at, at one point, uh, the agility drills, even like staggered cones running around. I mean, that is strength training. I think that's something that gets overlooked as well as people. Well, I, realize. Yeah, I learned that from Vern in that first seminar is that, that, and you asked earlier on, uh, everything's strength training. I mean, and, and if we talk about sports specific, well, the most sports-specific training a hockey player can do is play hockey. Um, and when you're playing hockey, you are certainly working on strength and, and everything else. But I, I'll hearken back to one thing that I learned early on from uh, Roger Eisens, uh, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, I was talking about core strength, something I was planning to do with the women's rowing team. Now, rowers, uh, if you're a hockey audience and you may not have but rowers tend to be really, really long levered. Long levers move boats really, really well. Um, but that means that the connections from toes to fingernails, as you put it, um, uh, through the core have to be really, really strong. So I was going to work on core strength with my female rowing team, and I was showing Roger what I was planning to do, and he smiled and he said, Remember that not every movement that requires core strength will create it. And so the example I would use for hockey is I would say you'd have to agree that if you're going to really hammer a puck from the blue line to the goal, if you're going to hit a slap shot at the point that the, that the, the blade of your stick encounters that puck, if your core is soft and weak and those links are not firmly connected co-contracted you're not going to hit that very hard it's not going to it's not going to be very accurate it's not going to be a good shot and but if you decide that you're going to create core strength by going out and hitting 100 slap shots every day you might ruin something you might ruin a weaker structure before you actually create the core strength and integrity that you that you ultimately are going to need to be able to drive a shot towards the goal with a lot of force. I think you could say that about uh, a, a baseball player. It takes great core strength to, to throw a baseball uh, at 90 plus miles an hour. But if you go outside and throw as hard as you can every day, thinking that that's going to create the core strength that you need, it, that's again, that's a, a putting the cart uh, before the horse. So I think we need, we need to understand the, the, the way the strength needs to be created in progression to get us to the point where we can survive all of those moments. And, and, and 
Does, does that make sense? Does that? Absolutely. And I think you're, you're kind of leading into another one progression, and that's another topic, but I don't want you to, to go too long here for you. I know you get, you're a busy man. You got stuff going on in your own world, but I think you're spot on again. I think talking about it, you just don't want to overdo the same motion. I think supplementing it with other movement patterns that also work your core. And I think you nailed it again on a great point that I've learned personally as a, as a development coach, also just building my own fitness program or fitness business is you can, you're working your core just even by holding something above your head and throwing in a side lean. You know, you don't have to be on the floor in a, a supine position and, and doing a sagittal plane up and back, you know, uh, sit up where your, your feet are anchored underneath a bench. That doesn't, that, that's not just, that, that there's more ways, more brilliant ways and more athletically productive ways to, to build your core than just the basic sit-ups. But, and I think you nailed it. I think what's really cool though, is you bring up the word progression and I know that that's a main focus of strength and conditioning coaches and development coaches. So this is a really good bit, I think, for a coach to listen to is, well, where's the progression? How do you find the progression? And I'm going to, before you answer this, Steve, what I found, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm okay, I, I will stand corrected if you correct me here. <laughs> um, what I've learned from the workout group here in Park City is there is no better progression than someone coming into the group not knowing how to do a movement or maybe never having done the movement and then two to three weeks goes by and now they're doing the movement well. They did it terribly at first. They learned how to figure out the puzzle and then now three weeks, two weeks out, they are dialed in and they look smooth and graceful, as you say. And for me, as a coach, when I'm watching that, I'm like, there's no better progression. What more progression do you need? Well, there, there, there's, that's certainly a great way to get people to buy into what you're doing. Um, because so much of what we ask athletes to do uh, requires uh, a coordinated, well, it all requires a coordinated effort. Um, and sometimes the, that's a, that's a, that's a big heavy lift that takes a long, long time. I, Martin, I don't know how long it took you to be able to spin through the circle and and uh, and release without fouling every time, but that that's a skill. That's a real hard skill, and obviously in big competitions, a lot of people a lot of people blow through. So um, the, 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 I, the 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 you use the word pattern, and I and I think one of the things we haven't talked about that is so critical to what. I believe in is that what we really, when we, if we look at grace, what we're talking about is highly refined neural patterns. It's the central nervous system. The muscles will do whatever the brain can and the brain and the body and the central nervous system can organize them to do. Um, but they need direction. And so those neural patterns that we create are the, are the things that are going to be what we rely on when we start playing the game or when we're in a competition. And if we haven't created sufficiently strong neural patterns and neural connections, if those nerve axons haven't been myelinated to the point where we, we can rely, we can react and respond effect, effectively and efficiently in a timely manner, 
we're going to lose more than we're going to win. And we're probably going to be injured more than we're not injured. So those are the things um, uh, that, that, that neural patterning is so critical. And you can see this. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're a right-handed person, it, it comes into trying to shoot a basketball left-handed and you feel awkward or throwing a baseball with your opposite side, you, you, you start to realize how effectively and how important neural patterning is. You can, you can do this simply by trying to, and I always tell athletes to do this, try to brush your teeth today with the other hand. You realize that almost every day you use the same hand and now you brush your teeth with the other hand and you see that you've got toothpaste smeared all over your face because the other, the other side of your body was not neurally trained to do that. It, it could be, and I would argue that you'd probably be a more functional person if you could brush your teeth with both hands. But neural patterning is such a critical component to what we do. And that's why movement puzzles and, and, uh, and tweaking movements. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the best advantages I had as a, as a, as a coach, as I developed was that I, I really didn't have, I had a lot of athletes in a small facility with a limited amount of equipment. So I had to learn how to, to play with movement and, and to, and to play with movement that wasn't venue and equipment dependent. And so that's why I call myself a movement specialist more than I do a strength and conditioning coach or a performance coach for that matter. I think that if we can become better movers, we can be, we, we will be better athletes. And if we're better athletes, I've always maintained, you know, if I can make Jack Skelly into a better athlete, um, then, then a hockey coach should be able to transform that athlete into a better hockey player. Exactly. Exactly. Great, great point. And neural patterning, patterning too. Like I, the way I see it is like a, you got a gravel bumpy road that just smoothens out into a nicely paved road over time. And, and you take it back to that really the, the comment that you made about graceful movement and how the eye uh, is attracted to graceful movement in sport. And usually those are the athletes that you're watching, whether they're running, skating or throwing a hammer or whatever that's that's what you connect it to and that's what your eye looks for and when you were talking about that previously and i it it was brought up in my head again was sean allard my old uh skills development coach on the ice would always say while we're while we were practicing new skills or developing skills on the ice that the navy seals would have the saying before mission and their their saying was slow is smooth smooth is fast and I think that's a really cool statement. I think it's a really cool phrase because when you look at a kid or a pro athlete, you can tell, you can tell an NHL hockey player uh, from a AHL hockey player. If they're, if they're moving in, in drills, you could even, you could pick out the one NHL player from the group of AHL players just based off of movement and graceful movement because, because those guys are a little bit more poised they may be moving. It looks a little bit slower, but they're more efficient. Therefore they're faster. So when you watch these kids and your kid, you, maybe he's just got the choppiest, fastest stride in the world, which is what I teach kids on the ice. It, it may look fast, but to somebody that knows what they're talking about, that's like, that's not fast. You're, you're actually inefficient. You're actually slowing yourself down. So 
I think your point of neural patterning is just, even if you just give these kids a new skill and you are or this person, this athlete, a new skill, and you just run them through it and, and keep running them through it. And even if it's slow, slow, whatever, your progression is going to be smoothing out that neural pathway. And eventually they're going to be, it's going to be second nature movement for them. And I think at that point, it's like, what, like I said, what, what more, of a progression do you need at that point? Uh, and it, maybe it's not a mathematical progression that you can write on a piece of paper or a number that you get from a machine, but it's visual and it's directly applicable to that athlete and their sport. And you've now made them, like you said, a better athlete as a whole. And once they're a better athlete, then it's up to the coach of their specific sport to take that canvas and make them into a better, better player. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think it's just, it's better raw material yields a better product. And that's, I mean, that's the fundamental, I mean, that is one fundamental truth that I've always worked from, you know, I'm, I'm not a soccer coach, but I, I honestly believe that if I can, if I can hand that soccer, a good soccer coach, a better athlete, then that better athlete can be trained to be a better soccer player and, and better to me is, uh, you know, adaptable rather than simply adapted. And, um, that's, that's the survive and thrive. You know, the, the example I always use is the, the basketball players that go up for a rebound and they, they come down and one lands on the others, the side of the other's foot. Um, that's a, potential disaster i mean you have a split second to sort that moment out and either survive it or crash and burn and i don't have the research to point to but it simply stands to reason that athletes that have trained in more circumstances and in uh in in more ways where they have had to self-organize at speed to solve a problem, a movement problem. I think those are the athletes that are going to survive more of those 50-50 moments. And, and a lot about athletic success literally is survival. If you tear your ACL at age 13, <laughs> you have a torn ACL for the rest of your life. And it doesn't matter how good the surgical skill that you bring to bear on the problem is. I mean, now you're now your knee is compromised and that's not going to go away. So, um, so I, I think survival is a key part of this. And I really would encourage parents to think about that because that's the other truth that I've lived with. And that is that my job is to keep people from getting hurt. And, and, and I see the, 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 the easiest basis criteria by which you should judge uh, a, a coach is are his or her athletes injured a lot? <laughs> if we have a lot of injuries, we're probably doing something wrong. And, and, and I believe that people who do what I do should be hired and fired on the basis of, of that alone. And I think that holds true even if you're working with a sport that involves you know, physically unpredictable circumstances at high speed like ice hockey. I mean, my athletes should hold together um, better and longer 
And if I can do that, if I can do that with somebody like you, I can prolong your career. I can prolong your ability to, to make money playing the game you love. That's, that's a great thing. That's satisfaction for me as a coach. That's perfect. I think that's a great way to end this one. Um, <laughs> you, Steve, the thing is, is I was just thinking as you're finishing up speaking there and you shared so much, you've, you've had such a direct effect on my life. And, and I think that is the coolest part about coaching. In my opinion, what I've learned is like, you can, you can have such a positive effect on a person's life, on a kid's life, on a pro's life, whoever you're coaching, if you're, if you're doing it the right way. And I, and that's kind of where I'm at in my, my life as a finishing up my pro career, maybe I'll be able to milk a few more years out of it. We'll see. Um, But I definitely want to get into coaching later because of people like Steve and that is the coolest part about it. And, and that's the kind of coach that I want to be. And to, to kind of stress this and end this on, on this kind of note, this is Steve is so important to me as a person, as an athlete, as a, as a coach, but for me, myself as a current athlete, as a person that aspires to be a coach that I like revel in the idea of getting on the phone and pinning him down for a half an hour to, to 45 minutes to an hour. I think we're pushing an hour and 15 on this one. And I'm like almost saddened because I know that I'm probably not going to talk to him for a little bit now for a while. And I, I just, I could talk to this guy for hours. There's so much knowledge here that he's learned from other people. And like he well, said, Jack, some of that knowledge I've learned from you. So let's remember this well, thank is a two way street. And I have, I have grown as a coach by working with athletes like you and, and, and we, that, I mean, we always, right now the, the phrase that coaches use is, is evidence-based practice, but for coaches, it's quite often it's practice-based evidence. In other words, we do something and then I evaluate what we did and the effect it seems to be having. And then I have to decide whether or not it was val- valuable or and valid or not. But so I, I want to thank you um, because I have, I have benefited immensely from my association with you. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. So those listening, I please, um, I, I hope that you have taken Steve's words seriously. Mine, mine as well. Martin's um, Martin is a, again, one of those great coaches as well that has a great positive effect on his athletes. And these, these people like Steve, like he had mentioned, he's, he's standing on the shoulders of giants. So he is willing to admit, humbly admit that he has learned a lot of the things that he's learned over the years from other brilliant minds in the coaching world. So yeah, and I'm not humble about that. I'm proud of that. <laughs> yes. So he's I'm proud he's, to name my teachers. Exactly. So I think we'll leave on that parents, coaches, young athletes, pro athletes, anybody that's listening, um, please heed the advice of these guys. I know I do. I bank on it. It's super important to me. And if it's important to guys like myself that are current professional athletes that genuinely care about the development of other people and helping, maybe you should take these words seriously as well. So Steve, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, you got some stuff going on in your world 
Um, and uh, you're busy just like anybody else. But Martin, thanks for facilitating this. And then no problem. We'll see everybody in the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys.